We are in Genesis 43 today, and uh, kind of interesting, uh, providentially, I didn't actually plan on doing a Father's Day sermon, and yet uh, this essentially is a lot about responsibilities of a father. Uh, so there was much here that I thought applied, and so I talked to, titled it, uh, The Burden of Fatherhood, in light of that. Let us read the scriptures. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What could we, what we told him was an, was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me. And we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge for his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring back to you, uh, him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would have been, we would have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some bags of choice fruits of the land in your bags. Sorry, take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouths of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise, go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into my house, and slaughter an animal, and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him, and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house, and they said, It is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and to seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, O my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food, and when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks And there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. And so we have brought it again with us. And we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in the sacks. He replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God 
and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And then the man who had, uh, the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when they had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon. For they heard that they should eat bread uh, there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself said, Serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves, and in the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, this holy history that has recorded here, as Paul testifies, was written for our instruction, that these people are examples to us upon whom the ends of the ages has come. These events are meant to remind us of the power of self-deception, pleasure, and idolatry. They also remind us that you are faithful. Texts like these are one way that you guard our hearts against such, such temptations. And so I ask that you would instruct us now that we might enjoy the earthly benefits of our eternal salvation in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. For those of you who follow my blog, which might be three of you, um, you may have noticed this week I finished up and reviewed a book by the title of Fearless. Uh, this was a book that was given to me, a promotional copy, so that I might uh, read it and review it, hopefully say good things about it. And it's the story of a man named Adam Brown. And Adam was a member of SEAL Team 6. And in 2010, he was killed in his final deployment. And one of the many interesting things that I found as I read this book and learned about his life and about his family and uh, his experience in the military was the role of his father and how difficult at points it was to actually be this man's father. And it, it reminded me that sometimes fatherhood requires hard choices. I'll share one of those hard choices that his father Lance had to make. Adam had an older brother, uh, Sean, as well as a twin sister, and uh Everything seemed to go relatively well in terms of the, how the kids were going. They did well in school. They all went off to college. But then something happened with Adam. Adam met a girl. Adam lost focus. The girl that he met was involved in drugs. 
And it was through her that Adam became introduced to drugs and took crack cocaine and became addicted to crack cocaine. And so Lance had to watch his son's life become more and more unraveled. This son who in the past had been so dependable became incredibly undependable. He was arrested once, but was freed. Returned again to this lifestyle where they would often have to go to crack houses and pull him out and, and he had moved in with a friend because he couldn't live with his parents anymore. All of these difficulties brought upon his life by uh, the crack. And then he stole, not just from his parents, but from the man that he lived with. Took his car, stereo equipment, money, guns, thousands of dollars worth of things. And his parents had to make a hard decision. What Lance would say was the hardest decision of his life. That was the decision to when they discovered where he was to call the police and beg them to arrest their son. Fatherhood is not always easy. And I thought of that in light of this text, how difficult fatherhood can be at times. The big idea, it's not so much about fatherhood, but that knowing Jesus is our guarantee enables us, not just fathers, but especially fathers, to act boldly. Let's start with the idea that Jesus is our guarantee before the Father. Sort of a strange way to put it now, isn't it? Our guarantee, and we'll see why uh, I say that in a little bit. But we see, of course, that the famine has continued. They did not know how long this famine would continue. Joseph knew seven years of famine, but they didn't know this in Canaan. And so it continues on. The food that they had, it was gone as the famine had ravaged the land. And Jacob, the patriarch, feels the burden of all of the people that are under his care. It's not just him and his wives, but his children and their wives, his grandchildren, And who knows how many servants he had because he was a very wealthy man in the land. And so the burden of all of these people rests upon the shoulders of the patriarch. Some of us don't understand what that feels like at times. If you have run your own business and other people work for you, you know what that is like. I've got a brother-in-law who runs a business And he feels the weight of the fact that not only is he providing for his own family, which is larger than my family, but he's also the means by which God provides for other families. And so when work is scarce, he feels the burden. And Jacob feels this burden. And yet, as the patriarch, Jacob, though he must act, Jacob is stuck. He is stuck because he lives in the fear of what happened with Joseph's death. He lives because he's stuck because Simeon now is imprisoned in Egypt. He's afraid that someone else will get caught in this web. He's afraid that all of life is crumbling down upon him, that God is out to get him. And Jacob does not want to lose another son, and he especially does not want to lose Benjamin. Benjamin, the last tie to his beloved Rachel. Okay, this is an incredibly powerful, emotional 
thing for Jacob. He's struggling with this. Joseph, on the other hand, wants to see his brother. He wants to see Benjamin, but no one knows that it's Joseph, of course. But he's also waiting to see if the brothers will forsake Simeon or whether they will come back and rescue him. Are they still the same scoundrels and rascals that threw him in the pit and sold him into slavery? Or are they different? Have, have the 20 years produced change in these men? It is into this that Judah arises. Judah becomes the new leader, a spokesperson of the brothers. He supplanted Reuben in his, remember his really bad idea last year. If I don't bring him back, you can kill two of my sons. Yeah, that's helpful. Judah begins to plead with Jacob to preserve the family. And now Judah is in a, in a prime position to do this. Because what has happened to Judah? He's lost two of his own sons. They were wicked. God put them to death. He knows the loss of children. And so he's equipped to come before his father. He has, he suddenly now has compassion upon his father and he pleads for, with him that they would be able to go to bring Benjamin down. And he puts it this way. I will be a pledge for his safety. I. Not my children, I. Judah takes personal responsibility for the well-being, for the safety, for the health, the existence of Benjamin. One of the things that uh, happened, thinking, uh, and this reminds me of, of what happens in the story of uh, Adam Brown. He gets a, a plea deal in which he promises to pay restitution, goes to Teen Challenge for a year. He comes back from Teen, teen Challenge, and he's finding it a hard, very difficult to stay off of the drugs in the real world, outside of the structure of the Teen Challenge environment. <laughs> he has some problems, but he meets a girl and all this. Short, long story short, he decides to go into the Navy, and he's always wanted to be a Navy SEAL. And so he shows up at the recruiter's office in his hometown of Hot Springs, Arkansas. And he basically, you know, he's got to be honest. I have two arrests. I have a long list of uh, crimes that I have committed. And, uh, and I'm addicted to crack cocaine. Just what the Navy wants, right? <laughs> Just what our military needs. This kind of guy. And the recruiter was honest with him, and he says, why should I do this? What makes you think we should bring you in? How do I know that you are going to be okay here? And he looks to the wall, and on the wall is a picture of Captain Bushman, the man who is the district supervisor for all the recruiting of the Navy in the Southeast, who happened to formerly live in Hot Springs, Arkansas, and whose son is the best friend of Adam Brown. And he says, call him. Kuru goes, okay. What is amazing to me is that Captain Bushman knows the crimes of Adam Brown and yet knew the younger character, believed in him to the degree that he said, send me whatever waivers you need. I will sign them. Treat him like my own son. 
he put his career on the line for this young man. Just like Judah is putting his life on the line, saying, I will bring Benjamin back to you. I will suffer the consequences. We're not sure exactly what the consequences are, but they probably were that he would be a slave to his father the rest of his father's life. Judah acts as the surety, as the old King James puts it, the guarantee. He personally will bear the blame. Judah, a father in his own right, has moved beyond his resentment of Jacob after he's lost his sons and now acts on behalf of the whole family. But I want to tell you that the greater descendant of Judah, Jesus himself, he is the one who acts as our surety. He is our guarantee. He is our pledge before the Father. He is the one who guarantees our salvation because he has promised to bring us home. He's promised the Father that he would do this. John 6 This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And so Jesus promises his father that he will bring from the dead, bring life to those that the father has given him. He will resurrect the elect, those who believe in Christ, in him for their salvation. And John 10, he says, I give them eternal life and they uh, will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And so there is a security that we experience in Christ Jesus precisely because he says, I hold you in my hand. It is the powerful, mighty hand of God, and there's no one that can pull you out of it. And so Jesus sort of makes this dual promise. He promises the Father that He's going to bring us home. He's going to keep all of these promises. He's going to give us eternal life, raise us up on the last day, and present us to the Father in fullness. But He also makes a promise to us that He's going to do those very same things. That our salvation rests not upon us, but upon Him. He is the guarantee of our salvation. His work is sufficient before the Father for us. All that the Father has given him shall be raised on that day. He takes personal responsibility for our well-being if we are in Christ. There is no one who can steal, destroy, or take us away from him. One of the things that Adam Brown was famous for as a Navy SEAL was when there was a problem, he'd say, I got it. In fact, the day on his last mission, that's what happened. There was a problem. He said, I got it, and he moved into fire and got killed. Jesus, when, when, with us, regard to us, always says, I got it. If we're falling into sin, he says to the Father, I got it. I have already paid for their sin. I, it is good. It is pardoned because of what I have done. I got it. If we're struggling with doubts and fears, he says, I got it. I will come to you and I will show you from my word what you need to know to sustain you and to encourage you. If we're in the midst of of temptation and trial or affliction, Jesus says, I got it. I'm going to take care of it because I have promised you, you are in my hand. 
There's no one who can snatch you out. There's nothing. This is why Paul can say in Romans 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, danger or sword? The answer to all of those is no. They cannot separate us from the love of God that is uh, in us. Uh, sorry, love of God for us in Christ Jesus, precisely because Jesus says, I got it. I am the surety. I am the pledge. And so Jesus, the mediator, takes responsibility for us and is our guarantee to the Father. Second part of this, okay, you have to, we have to know that he's our guarantee before the Father. Secondly, we are to trust God and act with wisdom. In the midst of this terrible trial, God has provided a way out. Now, it's a risky way out. <laughs> Jacob doesn't know that his son Joseph is on the other end, that he, in fact, is the terrifying man down in Egypt. And so he believes, understands that there is a great amount of risk that is entailed in sending Benjamin to Egypt. There is a very real chance that Benjamin will not come back. But this is God's way out of the famine and the death that surely awaits them. As, J- as Judah, Judah tells him, if we do nothing, we're going to die. If we go, we might die, but we might live. Let us go and get the food. As fathers, we often have to make difficult decisions for our family's benefit. Again, the idea, what I saw reading in the book, reading the story, back in 1979, anyone know who was president in 1979? Jimmy Carter. Anyone remember how the economy was in 1979? We mallow. <laughs> Double digit inflation. And Lance Brown ran out of work. He had one month's salary in the bank. The mortgage was due. He has to feed the kids. And so what he decides to do is he took a four-month contract in a different state to feed his family. And on the second one of these kind of contracts in yet another state, he decides, I need my family with me. And so they embarked on this odyssey all throughout the country, going from state to state wherever there happened to be work at that particular point in time. They ended up buying an RV, and they would kind of just move around. And at one point, their travels brought them to Tucson, Arizona. And in the the course of uh, those years, his older brother went to like 15 different schools. Started when Adam was five. And finally, when, when Adam was getting ready to go into the fifth grade, okay, that's how long it was, getting ready to go to the fifth grade, Lance says, we, this is too difficult on my family. We're, gonna, we're going home to Hot Springs. If we starve, we starve at home. Dads have to make incredibly difficult choices sometimes for the well-being of their families. They do things that they do not want to do because They are charged by God to protect and provide for the ones He has placed in their care. As fathers, we make these difficult decisions, but we make them in light of this, of what we see in 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation is, or 
and that word can also be translated as affliction, testing. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted or afflicted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And Jacob finally decides he's going to take that avenue of escape and send his sons with Benjamin down into Egypt. But here we find the hinge upon which everything else turns. The most important part of it, Jacob finally prays. Oh, fathers, we need to pray God's blessing down upon our children in accordance with the covenant. We need to be faithful and praying for the people that that God has placed under our responsibility. What's interesting about the life of the Brown family is that uh, Adam's father, Lance, grew up in a family that went to church. Good Baptist people. But when he got married and went away to war and came back, he didn't go to church anymore. And so what would happen is the grandmother would sometimes take Adam and his twin sister to church. And then, while they were in Sunday school, Adam started praying for his parents, that God, Jesus would save their parents. Nothing happened. It was in the midst of Adam's addiction, the years that were eaten up by this addiction, that his parents went back to church, heard the gospel, gave their lives to Christ. And it was out of that gospel faith that they began now to pray for Adam. And it was in in jail where they put him that they had sent their associate pastor whose daughter had the similar problem. And it was there that Adam recommitted his life to Christ. But it all started with prayer. It all continued forth with prayer. Jacob saw things move forward through prayer. Jacob had to trust God's covenant promises. Because think about this for a moment. The promise is at threat because of the famine. God would lose his people. If they die in the famine, God's promise comes to nothing. But God also keeps it, keeps that promise as he hears the prayers of his people. In light of that, bringing the promise back before him. uh, Jacob trusts so much that he's able to put his favorite son in danger. Jacob prays, the briefest of prayers. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. He already learned that God was powerful. Have you? Have you had first-hand experience with this God and with His mighty power whose hand no one can stay? Jacob looks to God, the Almighty One, who has spoken to him, and he looks to this mighty God for mercy. Jacob here is not exhibiting passive trust. This is not a let go, let God kind of thing. okay? Because he's acting too. He's trusting and he's acting. He's sending his children to Egypt to buy food. But he's acting precisely because he trusts God. 
thought about this for a little bit. Israel. Mentioned in 1 Corinthians 10, they walked through the Red Sea. Israel had to trust Almighty God to deliver them from the Egyptians. And in order to do that, they had to walk through the Red Sea. They couldn't just stand on the side of the sea and expect God to destroy the Egyptians. They had to obey what God had told them to do and go. Walk through, and then the Egyptians come, and there come the waters. So biblical faith is not a passive sort of thing. But it it often calls us to act upon what God has told us to do. Fathers and mothers and children need to have personal experiential knowledge of God in order to trust God. You're not going to trust someone blindly, are you? Do you just trust your most important possessions to someone you just met on the street? Would you give your children into the hands of just anybody? No. We must have personal experience with God so that we will trust God. Fathers must also recognize their limitations because ultimately, though we have been entrusted with our children and we have a responsibility to protect our children, we cannot do that perfectly. There are things that are beyond our control that we cannot eliminate, and ultimately we must trust God to protect our kids, our wives, our loved ones. And so Jacob acts with trust, but he also acts with wisdom. He follows the custom of the day because you didn't show up before an important dignitary like Joseph empty-handed. Okay, now he, this time he knows they're going to meet jo- this, the governor of all of Egypt, so they have to meet with him, and so he gets together this big gift, scrounging up what they can from what they still have, fruits and nuts and balms, and send this off that they might show this man proper respect. And so Jacob also acts with wisdom as well as faith. Brothers and sisters, sometimes we have to lead our families through the valley of death. At least it feels that way. Sometimes we have to do that in order to find life in Christ. So faith in difficult circumstances is trusting God's promises and prayerfully acting. Third thing I want us to think about is that tests reveal how God is at work in our lives. The brothers show up in Egypt with Benjamin. They show up before Joseph. Joseph recognizes all of this, sets up a banquet. Now, there's two things that are are going on here. There is the graciousness of Joseph towards his brothers. in in displaying incredible hospitality to them who have been so uh, evil towards him. Hospitality is a great thing. Uh, I think that's one of those areas where some of it, we're, we're, we're okay in hospitality, but I think we can do better in hospitality of building the relationships with one another and by inviting other pe- others into our homes 
and, and developing a stronger fellowship. We're doing okay, but I, I think that's still something we could do better in by the grace of God. But the brothers are filled with fear. They didn't see this banquet as something to be excited about. They're fearful about going to lunch because they're afraid that they will also end up in Joseph's dungeon with Simeon. They've got fear in their hearts because the money was returned. Now, remember, they've passed one of the tests. They didn't forsake Simeon. They cared about him enough to come back, maybe. We're not sure if that's exactly why they came back. It may have just been to get the food. But, you know, they showed up. <laughs> they met the qualification. They didn't try to sneak in, pretend to be someone else. Okay, let's divide up into groups and get, the, you know, get. No, they came back to claim their brother. Simeon. They confess that they found the money in the sacks. These men are not the same dishonest men that Joseph knew before. Indeed, they have changed. Joseph is still not... Too many J's in this thing. It's Joseph, it's Judah, it's Jacob. Too many J's. But they've come clean on that. And so there's at least some work has taken place in their lives. But it's interesting how the steward responds to them. He says, your God and the God of your father has replaced this. He's given you this gift. He's like, I got your money. But did you catch that? He's not a Hebrew. And yet he is speaking about your God and the God of your father. I don't think that's just something he kind of threw around. I, I suspect it's something that he learned about through his interaction with Joseph. That Joseph was instructing him as he could, when he could, about the biblical God as opposed to the gods of Egypt. See, Joseph, again... He didn't go rogue. He didn't go native. He maintained a biblical faith, and he shared that faith with his servant. The very least, this man knows about Joseph's God. Perhaps he even believed in him. So Joseph prepares this big banquet. He follows the customs of Egypt. Because remember? Well, maybe you don't remember. But The Semitic people were very offensive to the Egyptians. They didn't eat with them. That was one of the many things. This is foreshadowing what's going to come with uh, the oppression of the Israelites by the the Egyptians. Okay, He eats separate from them. He continues to play this role. But he prepares this gracious banquet banquet for them, even though he's he's separate from them. But notice what he says to Benjamin. God be gracious to you. He singles out Benjamin. His blessing on Benjamin uh, should surprise them. It's, it's, he's not speak. It's not like a Ra or any of the. He didn't mention any of the gods of Egypt. He uses Elohim the way in which he and his fathers and his brothers had mentioned God. Okay. This should, all of these things go on. To, the order in which he places them, which is the proper birth order, all of these things begin to spark wonder in his brothers. But what happens is that Joseph proceeds to lavish this excess on Benjamin. 
Okay, They have passed a bunch of tests, but this is a new test. One last test. Will they fall prey to the same favoritism that led them to try and kill Joseph? He's going to show favoritism to his youngest brother. Will they become resentful and bitter? That's what Joseph wants to see. That's what this chapter doesn't tell us. We have to wait till next week <laughs> to see what happens with regard to that. But let's think about that from the perspective of our own lives. Because God instructs us what happens through the people in the past. We have to remember that our sanctification is incomplete. We may be justified, made, you know, declared in a right relationship with God because of our faith in Jesus Christ, and yet we're, we're we're still growing in Christ. We're still becoming more obedient. And each test reveals how far we've come and how far we still have to go. And over time, what should happen is that we've made farther and we have farther, uh, less far to go. These brothers are on the right path. As you look at the trials that have kind of come into your life, do you recognize that there's been progress in gospel-oriented obedience? Are you more like Christ now than you were five years ago? Ten years ago? Fifteen? Do the people that are closest to you, would they go, I see how you've changed? Or would they go, you're the same dude you were a decade ago. What's going on? In other words, is there evidence that Christ is at work in you? because he has worked for you. Courage. It's another word for fearlessness, which is the title of that book I read, Fearless. Courage is the willingness to move through fear instead of moving away from the circumstances. Fatherhood and motherhood. Bring us into contact with fear often. To be fearless is actually to bear the burden of fatherhood. And in order to do that, we have to be secure in Christ. We have to be grounded in that knowledge that He has taken responsibility for us, that we are firmly in His grip, that nothing can shake us out. And knowing that, knowing that we are secure in Him, then we can pray for God to keep those promises, not just for us, but for those under our responsibility. And then we see tests that will reveal that God has in fact been at work in us so that He can actually work through us as fathers. Sometimes we forget that aspect. I know I'm concluding, but we can't expect, we can't demand that God work through us if we're not willing for God to work in us. The only way for you, you guys to become better dads, to, to, you know, God working through you, is for God to make you a better person in Christ. That's, that's true for all of us. 
If you want God to work through you so that you might see others coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, if you want to see God work through you, that, that you know you might show mercy to other people, however it is you want to see God work through you, you have to recognize that God must first work in you to change you. Okay, now back to my conclusion. And so really, are we embracing the burden of responsibility or are we kind of running from it? Are we trying to be that class of perpetual adolescence that is a plague upon our society? Or are we growing up to become the men that God has called us to be in His Son? Let's pray. Father, it is hard for us sometimes to um, to hear that. Help us to hear it in light of the gospel. To remember that we are right with you only because of what Jesus has done. And that is intended to produce what we're talking about. Help us to rest upon the fact that Jesus is our surety, our pledge, our promise, our guarantee. Help us to be secure in our identity, our status in Jesus Christ, that we would begin to live boldly in this world. That we would not crumple when time gets, times get hard. But that we would cling to your covenant promises that we would pray that you would bring them to pass, that we would persevere in that prayer, not giving up after a week or two or a month or a year, but continuing to come before you in prayer, that we might see ourselves and our children and our families and our neighborhoods change. Only you can make us those kind of people. So we ask that you would make us those kinds of people. For our good and for your glory, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.